Amen. Good morning, King's Cross. Happy uh, first Lord's Day in the new year. It's good to be back with you. I've been out of the pulpit a lot at some level for me over the last, I don't know, four to six weeks. Uh, and it's the first Sunday of the new year. So there's multiple reasons for me just to warn you to buckle up. We're going to have some fun this morning. No, but I am. It's good. It's good to be back. I love this church. Love the chance to, to speak and, and particularly preach uh, in a pulpit where I know there's a congregation that feels like it's just leaning in uh, to the word as we open it. So let me pray one more time. Ask for the Spirit's help and then we'll get to work. Father, it is a rich privilege and joy through Christ our Lord to come to you by the power of the Spirit and even plead, Holy Spirit, would you illuminate the text to our minds and our minds to the text? But not only our minds, our hearts, and our wills, conform us to the image of Christ. We pray even for those who might not know you, even now, would you, in this moment, in this uh, sermon, in this day, on this day, give them new life, eternal life. Take them from spiritual death to spiritual life. For all of us, fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and teach us how to be faithful in a broken and unstable world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope your first week of the New Year's off to a good start, that you're still reading your Bible more, eating less, working out more, and spending less time on social media. Maybe you had some other resolutions. Those were some of the ones that I find myself making year after year. <clears throat> but I've made it through one week in my Bible reading plan. I got about 50 or so people uh, reading through uh, the Bible with me. If you'd like to do that, shoot me an email. I'd love to uh, get you in on that plan. I'd love to do that, but encouraged by that. But I have probably spent a little more time on social media already than I should have, especially the last two days. And the last two days in particular, whoo, social media in this broken world. Did you guys hear about the alien spotted in Miami? <laughs> <clears throat> So seriously, there was a, there was a massive event. Uh, there were several hundred, what looked like several hundred cop cars in Miami. Um, I think it was a, a fight among high school students at a mall. Uh, but a helicopter view showed just hundreds of cop cars. And so then media began to speculate what they couldn't, that, that couldn't just be for a high school fight. Surely it was something else. And then there was this grainy video from a long distance. It didn't even look like anything walking to me, but people were convinced it was an eight to 10 foot tall alien. Whew. It, and it, it was less believable than the traditional Bigfoot video. Um, and yet people really think there was an 8 to 10 foot alien in Miami. Then, and this is just the last 48 hours. I'm just giving you some of what I've seen. That's it. I'm just trying to whet your appetite with what I've observed. That's it. Then shortly after that, I saw presidential candidate Donald Trump release an official campaign video in which the narrator very calmly blasphemed saying God needed a shepherd to mankind who won't ever leave nor forsake them, so God made Trump. Just some common blasphemy to kick off this political system season. I watched and observed Biden is really going to run again, though he can barely walk. And, he, and I, don't, I don't mean that to be mean. I mean that in the state of his health is not good, and yet he's pushing a more progressive agenda than even he believed a decade ago. Whew, buckle up. Feels like 2024 is going to be one for the ages. In all seriousness, with jokes aside, this election year promises to be another one full of controversy. Likely leaving Christians with candidates that they're grieved over for differing options. If it's anything like the last two presidential election years, we can expect viral videos to incite divisions between black and white, between police and citizens, 
between political parties such that candidates can manipulate our greatest fears to solicit our allegiance and promise better faith and hope for tomorrow while most all of us collectively side-eye at these promises. Not only that, it appears that increasingly the ethics and morals of basic historic Christianity will be viewed as unacceptable conflict with the ethics and morals of an aggressively intolerant progressive culture that demands affirmation or else threatens alienation and perhaps worse for those who will not get on board and affirm the secular worldview of our day. So the question is, how are we to stand firm in such an unstable world when we just don't fit in anywhere? Where can we find courage and hope and help as outsiders even in our home land. If only God would tell us how to stand firm in his grace in a world where Christians are viewed as outsiders and treated with hostility because, in fact, we are Christians. I have good news for you in 2024. God has spoken long ago on these very challenges. In fact, the apostle Peter said he wrote 1 Peter for this very purpose so that Christians who are suffering social persecution would have living hope that as those born again through Jesus Christ, we should live as elect exiles that would not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon us to test us as though something strange were happening to us, but instead that we'd have no fear of them nor be troubled, but in our hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us, yet do it with gentleness and respect. He concludes this letter making his aim clear. I've written briefly to you, it exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Today we start a new series, 1 Peter, Standing Firm in Grace. Now in Exodus, when our study through the book of Exodus and our study through the book of Matthew, we looked at large portions of Scripture. As we go through 1 Peter this year, Lord willing, as I preach through 1 Peter, when I'm in the pulpit, we're going we're to take much smaller chunks, just maybe a few verses at a time, and dive a little deeper down into doctr uh, doctrinal truth that would help us understand how do we stand firm in the midst of a culture where it's increasingly difficult and complex for Christians to remain faithful as Christians. So again, I read to you the opening two verses. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. See, understanding our identity in relation to God and in relation to this world is key in standing firm in grace in an increasingly anti-Christian culture. If you want a main point this morning, a hook to hang on to, we stand firm by remembering that we are chosen by God, but aliens in this world. We stand firm first by remembering that we are chosen by God, but aliens in this world. Peter addresses Christians as elect exiles or chosen aliens in verse 1. And then he elaborates that on in verse 2. And so I just want to consider just for a second, what does it mean that we are elect or chosen? And then what does it mean that we are exiles or aliens? So we'll consider those two things, make a few applications and be off in our study in first peter first elect we are chosen by god we are chosen by god now just to highlight the author and recipient so uh, the apostle peter opens up this epistle with a customary greeting so he identifies the author peter an apostle of jesus christ he is the author one of the 12 disciples 
Judas uh, was then replaced. Um, but he was one of the 12 disciples who lived and followed Christ. And we remember even in our study in the book of Matthew that he was a, a bold leader among the disciples. In fact, in Matthew 16, he was the one that confessed Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus responded and said, Truly, I say to you, you're, the, you're Peter, the rock, and on your, this rock I will build my church. He denied Christ in the end of his life three times on Christ's greatest time of need. And yet after Christ's resurrection, Christ restored him and sent him forth to teach and shepherd the flock. He's one who's seen the risen Christ and been commissioned and received his authority from the risen Christ. So he speaks on behalf of the risen Christ. Therefore, as an apostle, this epistle does not represent good advice, but a binding apostolic word for the church. This epistle is not just like, hey, here's some good advice for your new year. And this is the word of God speaking authoritatively to us through our brother, the apostle Peter. We'll see this further even as we look at the inspiration and authority of Scripture in verses 10 through 12, Lord willing, in a few weeks. But notice Peter is the one who writes, but the original recipients are those who are these elect exiles. And they're in, in this crescent, large crescent-shaped uh, region in the Roman provinces of northern Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. So all of modern-day Turkey is this the region where he's, he's addressing Christians in all of these regions. One commentator said it was approximately the size of New York, Pennsylvania, and Ohio, just to get your head around the region in which he's writing, how large it is, and as he sends forth this epistle. Now, scholars debate whether or not it was written to literal sojourners of Israel who were driven into this region and had converted to Christianity, or if it was primarily written to pagan converts who had converted to Christianity. I'm persuaded that surely uh, his original audience included both, but is aimed primarily at pagans who have been converted and now make up this new covenant community of Christ. I think that's clear from verses like 1 Peter 1.14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. 1 Peter 1.18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. 1 Peter 2.10.11, once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passion of flesh, which wage war against your soul. So I think he's talking to pagan converts who are now part of the new covenant people of God. Now we know just as God referred to Israel as his chosen people in the Old Testament, we see Peter is now explicitly teaching the church of Christ is the new Israel, God's new covenant people, new chosen people. So these exiles of the dispersion very well might include a number of Jewish converts who were literally sojourners in a foreign land. But I think Peter's primary audience is Gentile converts, who he's speaking to metaphorically, spiritually talking to them about being exiles, aliens, strangers in a foreign land, because in fact they are Christians. Spiritually and socially they are exiles. They no longer fit in this world because indeed God has called and challenged and called them out of this world. And that's what we first turn our attention to when we think about our identity as followers of Christ. We are elect. We are chosen by our triune God. If we're going to stand firm in a culture increasingly hostile to Christianity, we must remember who we are as the chosen people of our triune God. We must remember the good news that we have a God who moved heaven and earth to save us because he wanted to. Not because he had to, not because we did anything to talk him into it, but because of his own mercy and grace, he wanted to save us. We are elect exiles according to the full no foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. Let's consider the reality and implications of all three of those precious phrases. First, the Father foreknows. 
So Peter says you're an elect exile because are according to the foreknowledge of the Father. The Father foreknows. What does it mean that the Father chose us according to foreknowledge? Now, foreknowledge does not merely mean that God knew information beforehand that you would be chosen. Now, he is, in fact, omniscient. That is, he's all-knowing. So, of course, it includes that. But it is so much more than that. He not only knew you would be chosen in eternity past in Christ, he chose you in eternity past then. He chose you then. So election and foreknowledge pair together to capture God's fatherly, eternal, covenantal love for all those who are in Christ and led by the Spirit. Peter uses the same word later in chapter 1, foreknowledge, but in reference to Christ himself. 1 Peter 1, verse 20. He, speaking of Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So again, Christ was foreknown in eternity past. So that's, that, that, there's, that cannot merely mean that God looked down some kind of tunnel and knew that, no, no, he was, God the Father was fellowshipping with God the Son in eternity past. He was foreknown in that manner, but he was made manifest in these last days. So we just got to think deeply for just a little bit. God the Father has been eternally in loving fellowship with God the Son before the foundation of the world. Christ was foreknown forever, beloved of the Father. And we even see the same language of him being chosen in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, that he's a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Peter preached this same reality at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. God the Father not only knew Christ would be delivered up, crucified, killed by lawless men, and raised from the dead, he planned it. Paul also does the same thing, combines these two, election and foreknowledge, by discussing predestination and foreknowledge in the classic text, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Oh, Siri's talking to me. Siri, you're not chosen. Be quiet. <laughs> Romans chapter 8, verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. As the people of God, we are chosen and foreknown in Christ by the Father before the foundation of the world through the Spirit. What does this mean? It means his covenantal love and affection has been aimed at and set upon you before the planet earth existed. And this is why he says of the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim his excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, with and in Christ, we are chosen. In eternity past, the Father tied our destiny to his beloved Son. The Father's eternal fellowship with the Son, he's so rich that he foreknew and created and chose and redeemed us to be in the fellowship that he has with his Son in the Spirit. Ed Clowney says, these Christian Gentiles are God's chosen people because he has known them from all eternity. Jesus Christ was foreknown by the Father before the world was created. The chosen people of Christ are also foreknown by the Father. 
Their inclusion in the people of God is no accident, no afterthought, but God's purpose from the beginning. Those who are foreknown by God are foreknown in and with Christ. The expression foreknowledge does not mean that God had information in advance about Christ or about his elect. Rather, it means that both Christ and his people were the objects of God's loving concern from all eternity. Christian, you have been God's loving concern from all eternity. You have been chosen. You have been adopted by a perfect father into his beloved. He has the eyes of his fatherly affection on you since before you even had eyes. How can you stand firm in the midst of a shaky world, even when suffering, even when being persecuted by remembering you are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? Friends, they're not words to describe the joy in my heart for my own children. When I hear them say, Daddy, be it with joy or sadness, panic or celebration, wonder, admiration, concern, or pain, or question, whatever emotion, when my children call me daddy, something indescribable happens in my chest. When I return from being out of town and I get those hugs, there's not words to capture the emotion of that moment and what I feel and the affection I have for my children. The joy of their hearts beating through their wide-eyed smiles as I get to embrace them. There aren't words to describe that joy. Christian, God the Father is infinitely more loving than the best earthly fathers. And he chose to feel infinitely more affection for you, for every follower of Christ than I could ever feel for my children. And he's been feeling that way about you since before Adam and Eve existed. Sam Storms says to foreknow is to forelove. That God foreknew us means that he set his gracious and merciful regard upon us. That he knew us from eternity past with a sovereign and distinguishing delight. God's foreknowledge is an active, creative work of divine love. It's not bare prevision that merely recognizes the difference between those who believe and those who do not believe. God's foreknowledge creates the difference. You want to stand firm in grace. Meditate on the wonder of the fact that you are an elect exile according to the foreknowledge of the Father. But that's just subpoint number one. We got more work to do. Secondly, we are elect exiles. Notice, uh, because the Spirit sanctifies. So, according to the foreknowledge of the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. So it's not just the Father at work here. Now the Spirit's like, time out. I'm getting in on this party as well. Normally we talk about the sanctification of the Spirit. We think about the progressive work of the ongoing work. The sanctification is, uh, the Spirit is continually molding us and transforming us into the image of Christ. So normally we think about sanctification, we think about the ongoing work over our whole Christian life. However, in the scriptures, sanctification is a broad term, has broad usage. So it does include that, probably even primarily talks about that. But in addition, when the Bible talks about sanctification, it also includes the initial consecration. That when you're dead in sin, it is the Holy Spirit who makes you born again, who consecrates you to Christ, who sets you apart and makes you holy when you're converted. It's the Spirit that opens your eyes to see and trust and believe in Christ and His resurrection on your behalf. And I think that's what specifically Peter is talking about. The regenerating, quickening work of the Holy Spirit when one is converted, like Jesus talks about in John chapter 3 when we're born again. The Spirit sanctifies and sets us apart when we hear the gospel word preached and we believe, we repent of our sins and we trust in Christ. Peter talks about the Spirit's work like this even in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12. 
It was revealed to them, those uh, prophets of old, that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. How did they preach that good news to you? By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. The Apostle Paul also links election and the sanctifying work of the Spirit in this way, in belief in the gospel in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in truth. The sanctifying work of the Spirit convinces us of the foreknowledge of the Father, convinces us that we are known and beloved by God. For Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 14, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. If you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. Christian, if you believe in Christ, if you experience God as your Father, that is evidence you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. God the Father chose you, And God the Spirit rose and showed you. (laughs) So you were dead in sin and God sent his son to live for you, to die for you, to rise for you. And then he sent the father and the son sent the spirit to raise you from the spiritual dead, to show you what Christ had done and to show you God, in fact, is your father. He set you apart. He raised you from death. He convicts you of sin and righteousness and judgment. He illuminated the word to you and you to the word. He sets you free from the bondage of sin. He first came to you so that you might come to faith and obedience in Christ according to the knowledge of the Father. Karen Jobes in her commentary says, the electing purpose of God is made real by faith of believers, but that faith is itself a completely gracious act of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who first stirs in the heart a reaching towards God, quickens one's understanding of the gospel, convicts of sin, reassures of pardon, and transforms the character by fruit of virtues. You want to stand firm in the grace of God? Well, know the Holy Spirit sets you apart and empowers you even now, even in the midst of a storm of suffering. Learn to walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. That's just sub-point number two. We are elect exiles according to the full knowledge of the, foreknowledge of the Father, the sanctification of the Spirit, And lastly, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood. So it's the foreknowledge of the Father, it's the sanctification of the Spirit, and the Son saves. So we were saved, and now we get this purpose clause, for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. So Peter's giving us the means, namely the foreknowledge of the Father and sanctification of the Spirit, and now the purpose. Why did the Father choose you in eternity past? Why did he send the Spirit to raise you from the dead? That you might obey Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Now, again, it's possible Peter is talking about ongoing obedience, so obey Christ. But it seems based on context, he's primarily talking about our initial conversion to Christ. Again, when we're chosen, called by the Father, regenerated by the Spirit, we repented of our sins and we trusted in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and received forgiveness for our sins, we obeyed the gospel of God. Paul uses this language in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, talking about those who do not obey the gospel of God and the judgment they will face. Even when you think about the Great Commission, Make disciples, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded. So the first step of obedience is trusting in Christ by grace alone through faith alone. It's it's saying, no, nothing I can do can earn right standing with God. I'm totally trusting in him. That is to obey the gospel. By grace alone through faith alone, we became a disciple of Christ and we're now being taught to obey Christ 
But notice it said, for obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood. The only reason we can give obedience to Christ and even place our faith in Christ is because of the work of the Spirit and the foreknowledge of the Father. And all of that is possible and can be done because of the blood of Christ. This covenant relationship. Peter's connecting the new covenant chosen people of God to the old covenant chosen people of God. Just like God set apart Israel in Exodus with a covenant. So now he's set apart his new covenant people. If you remember in our study, you probably don't, so let me refresh you. Exodus 24. Moses told all the people God's word, and they pledged obedience to his word. They said, okay, we'll obey everything that Yahweh has commanded. And then the covenant was sealed in blood that was thrown on the people. This is all Exodus chapter 24. So after they, they hear the word of the Lord, they believe the word of the Lord, they pledge obedience to the word of the Lord, and then a sacrificial or sacrifice was made and blood was thrown on the people. The word has been preached to us. The spirit has sanctified and set us apart. And the blood of Christ has now been given that we might have forgiveness of sins and enter this new covenant with God as his people. Again, drawing on Ed Clowney. He says, now Peter speaks of Gentiles becoming obedient to Christ through the new covenant in his blood. We are sprinkled not with the blood of oxen, but with the blood of Christ. The altar that is sprinkled with his blood does not stand before Sinai, but in heaven. It's the very throne of God. The symbolism powerfully declares that Christ's death satisfies God's justice and makes atonement for our sins. The blood of Christ sprinkled on us marks God's acceptance of us because the penalty of sin has been paid. It also symbolizes God's claim on us. As Peter says, we were bought not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. We were foreknown by the Father, sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to the Son and sprinkling with his blood. This blood means he's atoned for our sins by his covenantal love and he's brought us into this covenant relationship. He's fulfilled it all and we rest in this finished work because of his blood. You want to stand firm in a shaky world? Rest in the finished work of Christ. Trust and obey him. That's why you were saved, to trust and obey him. <laughs> to rest in him and to live with him and to walk with him and to represent him. That's why he saved you. He didn't save you because you did those things. He saved you in order that you might do and be those things. That's why you were saved, so you might be able to trust and obey even in difficult days. Again, later in chapter 1, knowing you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead, gave him glory, that your faith and hope are in God. We are elect exiles, chosen according to the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to the Son, and sprinkling with his blood. The Father foreknew, the Spirit sanctifies, the Son saves. The triune God moved heaven and earth to save you. You want to stand firm? Meditate on that. Think about the fact, if, if he said, you're so precious to me, in eternity past, I set my affection on you. I'm going to send my Son to atone for your sins, cleanse you with his blood. I'm going to send my Spirit to raise you from the dead and bring you into this. I'm going to do it all that you might be with me forever. That gives you firm feet in a shaky world. Now, let me give one warning. This should lead to humility, sweet, sweet humility in us. Spurgeon says God's sovereignty, particularly in salvation, is the pillow we should lay our head on at night. 
So let me just say, if you love doctrine, you love theology, and your understanding of election and foreknowledge leads you to a spiritual and intellectual arrogance and judgmentalism, you're doing it wrong and misrepresenting God. Stop. This should lead to a sweet humility in us. Understanding God's sovereignty in all this should lead to a sweet humility that impacts how we relate to other people. If you're relating arrogantly and judgmentally to other people, you don't get it. You can tell me all the stuff you've read. You can tell me all the things you know. But if it comes off in arrogance and judgmentalism, you don't get it. Now, how could I say that that boldly? Because we're talking about it right here and later in 1 Peter 3.8. Application, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 1 Peter 3.15, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Understanding we are chosen by our triune God should lead to humility and unity and sympathy and brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind demonstrated through gentleness and respect. We are chosen. Elect. Secondly, exiles. We are aliens in this world. So understanding our relationship with God, he chose us by his grace alone. We did nothing to earn this. But as the people of God, the new cut, like he, he did it all. But being in right relationship with him, the fact that he chose us suddenly makes us strangers and aliens in this world. We don't fit in anywhere. We are aliens in this world. Now we understand a little more of whose we are. We can understand who we are in this broken world. Elect exiles. I want to make a few thoughts and applications. This is what we'll study about for the rest of this even series. But let's think for a second, what, what does it mean we are elect exiles? What is an exile? There's a stranger, a resident alien, a sojourner, a, a temporary resident, a person who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there with the natives temporarily. And then notice this phrase of the dispersion or diaspora. We're dispersed or scattered throughout the land. We are not in our homeland, but in a foreign land as the scattered people of God. We are those who, as one commentator puts it, understand themselves as God's elect. We have the ammunition to resist the norms and culture of the society that they inhabit. Divine election reminds the readers they have a status not because they're so worthy or noble, but because God has bestowed his grace upon them. Hence, they have the energy to counter accepted cultural norms and to live in accord with God's purpose. We are aliens. We are strangers. We don't fit in. We're sojourners. This earth is not our home, which should lead us to ask the question, where is our home? Where are we headed? Our citizenship, citizenship is in heaven. Now, to be clear, God created the earth good. And there are plenty of things about creation that is good. It's just tainted and jacked up by sin. Sin and death entered the world, so all that's good has been used in bad ways, and it's, it's broken. And So God is redeeming all things. He's going to redeem all things, and we're not going to get called up to live like angels, like little fat babies on clouds with playing harps and halos on our heads and like this miserable, boring place nobody wants to go to, but everybody thinks that's what heaven is. No, no, no. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. This earth will be renewed. He's going to renew it all, but currently it's not our home. Our home is the renewed new earth, not this broken one. And so there's this angst in us. Like, I feel at home, but not at home. I feel like this is beautiful and right, and yet ugly and wrong. I feel like I want to be here, but I don't want it to be like this. We are aliens. We are strangers. Our citizenship is in heaven. 
And he chose us out of this world for another world. But that's why we have this living hope, even as we're in this world, because we know it's coming. That's what we'll look at next week. No, 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 we know. We know there's a day coming where no more tears. We know there's a day coming with no more cancer and no more death, a death and no more uh, a brokenness in the world and no more rumors of aliens and no, no more crazy elections. We know that day's coming, but it's not this day. We're longing for that day. We're longing for that home, but we're not in that home right now. This is how the writer of Hebrews spoke of those in the hall of faith. Those whose faith is held up as an example for us to follow. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. Do you see that far home? And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Somebody tell me you're longing for that better home, that better country. Understanding it's not here. So we labor, we work, we serve, we vote, we do all the things we can as the best citizens as possible, knowing this is not finally our home, but we are headed home. We're not there now, but we're going. It's coming. It's going to happen. This reminds me, at some level, our experience is like, I went to UNC Charlotte before there was a football team, uh, which was very painful because I loved football. That's another conversation and story. But uh, back then, because there was no football team, uh, it was known as a suitcase college. What that meant was basically you went to school there, but nobody stayed on the weekends. You just lived out of a suitcase. You packed it up, and everybody went back home on the weekends. It's a suitcase college. You didn't, you didn't come, live there. No, you hung, you hung around for a little bit, but you had your bags packed ready to go back home. Kind of what it's like to be a Christian. We're here. We're laboring. We're doing the best we can, but we got our bags packed. <laughs> we know this is not home. Like we understand there is a home and we understand we're passing through this home and we're gathering people to take us home with us, but this is not currently home, but we long for that home. How then should we live? Well, we got to embrace our alienness. You gotta embrace it. How does this impact our cultural engagement? We embrace the fact we will never fit in. We will never fully fit in anywhere. Not in a political party, not in an ethnic culture, no, not in our particular families. We will never fully be home anywhere until glory. Because this is not home. And I think today it's common, everyone wants to stand out for Christ, but I wanna know if anyone's willing to be cast out for Christ. You, you want to you wanna, you wanna be able to give God glory when things go well for you? Are you willing to say, my friends will kick me out of this circle because of my faithfulness to Christ? Because we don't fit in. You got to be willing to kick out we don't, uh, get kicked out because we don't fit in. That should be our expectation. That there are going to be those who they thought we were cool. But as soon as Christ's word comes up and speaks to something in such a way that says, we're not cool with that, they kick us out. And we got to be okay with that. 1 Peter 4, verse 3. For the time... That it's past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Again, Karen Job says the foreignness of Christians increases as modern society accepts values and legalizes principles that are consistent, inconsistent with the gospel of Christ. One commentator reflected on tolerance as a highly esteemed modern virtue in words even more true today, writing, quote, we live in strange times or the times we live in make strangers out of folks like me. I'm not sure which. 
First Peter presents the Christian community as a colony in a strange land, an island of one culture in the midst of another. The new birth that gives Christians a new identity and a new citizenship in the kingdom of God makes us, in whatever culture we happen to live, visiting foreigners and resident aliens there. We should expect to feel like outsiders because we are chosen out of this world for another world. We should even understand we'll be insulted uh, for the name of Christ, and that's evidence that we have the Holy Spirit, not that we're not contextualizing properly. Listen to 1 Peter 4, 14. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So not if you're insulted because you're a jerk. Don't be a jerk. That's going against the whole letter. <laughs> but if because of your allegiance to Christ you're insulted, evidence the Holy Spirit dwells within you and that you're being a foreigner in this land. Joyful suffering. That's our expected experience because we are the called out ones. 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We are exiles in this world and yet agents of change within it. So it's not by being just like the world that will suddenly have a great impact on the world. It's being called out from the world, being transformed by the grace and mercy of Christ, having a gentleness and a humility and a kindness that reaches out and points to others and is ready to give them the reason for the hope within us. That's what God is going to use. So it's not, he's going to, we're going to be the dopest, coolest people on the planet. And then we're going to reach a much. No, no, no. We're going to be faithful to Christ. And by his spirit, he's going to bring other people in out of darkness into his beloved light what it looks like to be a faithful Christian church, where suddenly you may find yourself sitting next to people that you're like, I've got nothing in common with you except the crucified and resurrected Messiah and the spirit of glory dwelling within us, reconciling us to the same father. Therefore, you're my brother or my sister. And Peter wraps up his greeting, grace and peace be multiplied. I love this. Even the unity here, grace, charis, Greek word, they're, they're playing off a word that would just mean cheers. And they're saying, no, 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 we trust the grace of God in Christ. As new covenant believers, grace to you. But then he also says, peace, shalom. Because this covenant keeping God in the old covenant with Israel, and now in Christ, the true and better Israel, and now all those who are in Christ in the church, shalom. Grace, and peace, and not just a little bit of grace and peace, but grace and peace be multiplied over and over and over again to you. In part through this epistle, the grace and peace of God will be multiplied through us as his spirit gets this word into our hearts and transforms us and conforms us into the image of Christ and convinces us that God indeed is our father. That shows us here's how you live in a world and here's how you don't fit in. Here's the ways you're patient and kind. Here's the ways you draw hard lines in the sand. This is what it looks like to be and have the grace and peace of God in Christ. And then one of those means of grace and peace is that none of this is merely talking about individuals, but the chosen people of God. Not persons of God, but the people of God, the church. We're headed towards home. We're headed towards home. <laughs> we don't have to go through this alone. By the Spirit, we're brought in with our brothers and sisters saying, hey, help me learn how to live as a stranger in this world, knowing God is my Father, knowing that Christ has done everything necessary to bring me into this new covenant, knowing that all that's happened by the power of the Spirit, not because of anything I've done. Help me be faithful. Grace and peace be multiplied to you forever. I conclude this morning saying, if you're not a believer, we invite you, please come join us. 
please ask us what that looks like. We would love to help. Let me close in prayer. Father, we thank you.